Oh, hold on. I'm on. I'm on, but I just need to not move. Okay. No. Um, I've heard a lot of people here talk about when the Christchurch earthquake hit, the first thing was how do you get together with your family? Um, the people that you love, because they were spread all over the city. And so there are stories of people trying to get from A to B and how congested the roads are and getting caught in liquefaction. And it's the stuff of which movies are made. Because the first thing that happens when things go wrong is we want to get together with the people that we love. And civil defence say you should have a plan. Am I right? There are some civil defence experts here. You should have a plan where you meet together, that kind of stuff, because it's what we want to do. Actually, how many people here would have a story of trying to go across town or trying to reconnect with their family in the earthquake things. People like, I'm not allowed to raise my hand. Fair number. The trouble with distance, I mean, there's some wonderful things about modern life. Modern life makes it possible for us to travel. This wasn't the case three or four hundred years ago. Okay, I'm just going to... Okay, you can unmute me. Linda and I uh, met in Wellington, but while we were uh, going out, I did the dirty and I moved to Hong Kong and rang up and proposed over the phone, and most of our time of engagement was in different countries. Long-distant relationships are tough. I don't know if you've experienced this. Back in those days when the world was black and white, it was far too expensive to um, talk on the phone across countries. You just didn't do it. Um, so Linda and I sent each other letters, that's snail mail, you know, stamps and that kind of thing. It was really in. And, uh, and because we wanted to hear each other's voices, we spoke into cassette tapes. Another thing that no one knows what they are now. <laughs> but essentially, when you bought a cassette tape, you had a choice of buying a, a half-hour one or a 45-minute one. And we loved each other, so we thought... Um, <laughs> Um, have you ever tried talking for 45 minutes into a tape? <laughs> Man, that is tough. And what a load of tosh we said. But we taped them and we sent them to it just to hear each other's voices. Obviously, our long-distance relationships have got a little bit easier now. Now we have FaceTime and Skype and WhatsApp. And grandparents can talk to their grandkids on a tablet in a different country. Isn't that awesome? It is really, really cool. But it's still not the same as being there, is it? And there's something glorious when the grands come to visit and they move from being far away to coming near. Because long-distance relationships are tough. On Friday, uh, we had a phone call. It turned out that Linda's mum in Invercargill fell over and broke her arm. Long-distance relationships are tough. Because when you're not there, you can't provide soup. You can't come round and sort out the house. You, you, just these things aren't possible. And so a lot of us live with the grief of that. Long-distance relationships are difficult. So sometimes it's just really good to draw near. In the Old Testament, it was easy to read God as being distant. Now, it wasn't supposed to be that way. This, the Lord is near to all who call to him, to all who call on him in truth. And where it starts, we read in Genesis that Adam and Eve go walking in the garden with God, having a conversation. Hey, what do you think of those camellias, God? One of my better flowers. Um, but that doesn't seem to be how it unfolded from there. There were moments Moses chatting on the mountaintop with God. The Spirit could fall on Saul and he could prophesy 
this God that could lead by fire or cloud. But there was also a feeling of distance. Only Moses went up on the mountain. Everybody else had to wait. And man, we do waiting well, don't we? The sense of apartness. That was one of the, um, in the, in the Old Testament story, one of, part of the Jewish obsession with Jerusalem and the temple was this was the visible presence, visible symbol of God's presence with them. But still, that distance, God might have been near present in the Holy of Holies, but only once a year might the priest go into the Holy of Holies. The sense of some distance to God. And then, even worse, when Israel is invaded and the people of Israel are dragged off and they are mourning by the rivers of Babylon, not just the loss of their land, but the sense of losing closeness to God. Now, it's not that God is absent, or um, sometimes we hear people talk about the watchmaker God, a God that has set everything in motion and is away watching us like we are some um, 3D movie doing, um, instead of virtual reality, with reality goggles on, distant and uninvolved. Now, the promise has always been that God is near to all who call to him, but it doesn't always seem that way. And then appears in the desert this strange figure, John the Baptist. And what he says is, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As if it's been distant, but now it's near. And he talks of big changes and how we should change the world. In Mark, he gets more explicit. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of heaven is near. It is breathing down your neck, looking over your shoulders. Near. Well, John puts some noses out of joint, and he winds up, first of all, in prison, and then being killed. And in Matthew, when Jesus hears this, Matthew tells us, from that time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This sense of closeness. And again, in Mark The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So it's like this is the time has come. Look at your watch. It's time. If you've been on earth for a while, you've probably had this experience. Um, I associate it with airports. Waiting for someone to come near. I can still picture, through very rose-clouded glasses, waiting for Linda the first time she came to Hong Kong. Stand in, in Kai Tak Airport in Hong Kong, waiting. Is she going to make it? Will she make it through immigration? Waiting for her to come near. And then she was near, and I was overjoyed. It was glorious. And for the Jews, when Jesus announces it's time, the kingdom of God is near, it has that sense of we have so been waiting for this, like you do in the airport, for someone you love to arrive. And then there's a curious passage in Luke 10, which is where I'd like to spend a bit of this morning, when Jesus sends out a whole bunch of people with the same message. He tells them to heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. And there's that word near again. 
Now, why are we talking about near, coming near, drawing near? It's because this month we've been trying to think about the people who are next to us, that the good news of Jesus is really good, but it's not just for us. It's for others, and there are people who are near us. What is that like? What do we do with this? And I've noticed this year a number of mission agencies have been turning to Luke 10. So if you have a Bible handy, open it up. Have a look on Luke 10. If you've got a smart film, you can pull it up. They're turning to Luke 10 because Luke 10 has some things that speak to our world that help us in a way that some of our other passages we've used for, for mission, well, it's different. So I'd like to wander our way through Luke 10 and see what we can see. Okay. So starting at um, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him into town and uh, into every town and place where he was about to go. Now, little straw poll here, feeling slightly worried about this. How many people's Bibles say 70? Hold up a hand. How many people's Bibles say 72? <gasps> How can that be? <laughs> we don't... That's right. That's right. If you look, most of them will have a footnote and say either. We don't actually know. Okay? Um, we have manu access to manuscripts that differ. It looks as if mostly in the Hebrew Bible written in Hebrew that we have available, um, it looks like it is 70. But in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that's around at Jesus' time, it's written to 72. 72, well, on 70, that uh, depends. Um, some people turn it to Genesis 10, a list of nations. Um, some people point out that this, in the Septuagint, oh, sorry, in the, Hebrew, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, there are 72 nations, but in the Hebrew Bible, there are 70. There are 70 top priests, the Sanhedrin. In Numbers, this is, I love this bit because it's the signal that maybe we're being messed with. In Numbers eleven sixteen, Moses gathers 70 elders. Must be 70, mustn't it? Makes sense. He gets 70 elders around him. And then about 10 verses later, you find out that there are two extras who've been bunking who get tagged in. And you think, are you messing with us, God? What's going on here? How do I answer this? Okay, look, there is more scientific process and evidence behind the reliability of the Old and New Testaments than pretty much any other historical document. But there are some things we don't know. That is not to say you shouldn't study it. It is that you should. And when you do, you may find questions. If you are unsettled by this, may I recommend, Can We Still Believe the Bible by Craig Blomberg? This is a really well-written, good scholarly book, and it will does a very careful exploration of the issues that come as you are exploring the Bible. I'm, I would be—I have an e-book of it, and if you were interested, I would be happy to send you the first chapter. After that, you have to buy it yourself. Okay. <laughs> But don't get wound up on this. While we know it has to do with completeness, that for a first century Jew reading this, this says all, all nations. The thing about studying the Bible is that if you study it honestly, it's not just that you ask it questions. 
It is that it asks you questions. So chase the details. You can trust this. Help. Get in. Don't be scared. But don't let it stop questioning you. Okay. Jesus is sending them out, and he's going to send them to every place he was about to go. Verse 2. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Which means, he said, uh, pray, ask God for help, and there's going to be more work than you can do. I don't know about you, that feels a little familiar. Go, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. Now, the do not greet's a bit of an odd phrase for us Westerners. In their day, where uh, the fastest travel was a horse, or if you were really rich, you might have a kind of chariot arrangement, but uh, travel's not fast, you did greet people. It's what you did. It would be like going onto a marae without... Greetings. It, it just would feel wrong to walk past someone in the street and not say hi, not compare notes, especially if you're traveling distance. So the only people who did this were messengers, the king's messenger. Remember the only way you can send a message? There are no telegrams. I don't know if they've got onto tra um, uh, traveling pigeons, but I doubt it. This is how you send a message, you send a messenger. So if someone comes into your village, passes through your village and doesn't stop and say anything to you, what do you think? Something's up. There's some important news going on here. Okay, so that is the don't greet anyone on the road is, road is a symbol of a messenger. But there's some other stuff here. I'm sending you like lambs among wolves, says, this is not a revolution. This is about peacemaking, not making war. And then we get don't take a purse or bag or sandals. Well, I grew up in a tramping family, and if I'm going to go anywhere, I want to take a backpack. I actually don't have a suitcase. I take a backpack, that's what I do, um, and I take my sleeping bag, because then I know where I'm going to stay. And, and in fact, back in the old days, I still have a bivvy bag. Do you know what a bivvy bag is? Keeps the rain off you, so you can just sleep in it, which means you are totally independent and you can sleep anywhere. But when you're signing up to fly somewhere with Air New Zealand, they ask you, do you want to pay for a bag? And what do you do? Well, if you don't take a bag, what does it mean? You're going to have to stay with someone. You can pay for it. Or generally, if you don't take a bag, it's because you're staying with friends or you're booked into a hotel and your business is paying, I hope. I want to take my sleeping bag because I grew in a very independent family, but actually this says, no, you're going to be dependent on others. Jesus is sending out 70 or 72 into the neighborhood. He's going to, they are going to draw near to people in their neighborhoods. And he says, you're going to be dependent. Now, I suspect this is one reason why we find mission agencies referring to this a lot. Because a lot of our um, passages about going are about going and taking a message. Not a lot suggest talk about this power. When you do this, you're not going to be in power. 
You are relying on someone else to put you up. Anybody feel nervous about that? Yeah, there's a bit of a risk. Actually, um, I was with a group of people. We did a, a tramp, a hike, if you're not Kiwi, um, in the middle of remote China over a mountain. Um, we were carrying tents. <laughs> Do you know, there wasn't a bit of land that you could put a tent on that wasn't growing something. There, wa there was the road. Every other bit of land was being used. There was no possibility of putting a tent up. We were absolutely astonished. So we had to stay with villagers. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is expecting of them. And in fact, in the culture of the time, it was different. There weren't hotels. People did stay with others. That's how it worked. In fact, the cultural was the expectation was that if you greeted someone on the road, you might end up putting them up. Gosh, they lived a much richer social life than we do. Back to the peace. Not like a wolf, but like a lamb. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Well, peace is a bit of a loaded term for us. But for the first century Jews ruled by this foreign nation or that foreign nation, when they hear peace, they think of rightness, of shalom, things being right. So you say, may it be right in your house, and they go, yeah, that's what we're longing for. Probably that's what most of us are longing for. Um, and I quite like this as well. Do not assume that everyone will accept this. As in... The assumption is, that if someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. So don't worry about it. If they don't like it, that's okay. That's not your job. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. And don't move from house to house. So don't be a fly-by-nighter skipping around the place, flying from place to place, person to person. Eat what is put in before you. Another short Hong Kong story. I'd been there less than a month, and Ronnie took me out to a, a Chinese cafe and ordered steamed pig's intestines. Not that I could tell this, because it was all in Cantonese. Um, and a block of congealed, jellied blood. And then he ordered a, a bowl of, um, you know that kind of uh, Chinese sweet corn soup? OK. And I thought, oh, well. Okay, it's been put in front of me, so I ate it. I would not strongly recommend. I, uh, I ate what was put before me. A year later, he confessed that he was coming to see, um, he was testing me. What would this guaylo do? And he deliberately ordered foods that he really didn't like, and he had to eat them too, yes! <laughs> <laughs> Eat what is put before you. And actually, for the Jews, like that was a, not that huge a thing for me because I'm not, I'd like to think that I'm not hugely fussy about food. Maybe I am. Um, but in their culture, what you eat is really important. How you eat, it's really important. So eat what is put before you actually says a lot about stepping across your culture, going into someone else's comfort zone, and actually being okay with that. Can you start to see why people who are thinking about mission and stepping across boundaries might look to this passage and say it has something to us, say to us? 
You're going to your neighbor's house, eat what is put in front of you. I'm sorry that you don't like it. They might not either. Settle in one place. I do want to acknowledge I've spent a lot of my life shifting. I've had eight-year periods of time in a variety of places. There's some real riches from that, but I am aware that relationally it is different when you are settled in a place for a long time. There are things you get from that that are absolute gold because it takes time to draw near to anyone. It's a dance. It doesn't, in church circles, it's always spoken about as if it's like, we do this and ha, 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 ah, it takes years, actually. When you enter a town and, in, and are welcome to eat what is offered to you, notice that that is repeated, wants to drive it home. Eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Well, I think we'd all be pretty keen on the heal the sick. Insofar as it is, it, we can do so, I'm going to translate that a little bit as do good as well. If there's a need where you are, well, do something about it. And tell people the reason that you are doing good, the sick are healed, is that the kingdom of God has come near. And when we do this, we act just like John the Baptist. It's not about us. I'm not the great, this Jesus character. And this Jesus character is near, breathing over your shoulder. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we will wipe from our feet as warning to you. Well, that's a nice and mature way of handling things, isn't it? Um, there have been occasions I quite like this particular verse. There is some perverse satisfaction when someone's been really nasty for you to go out and go... I just don't want that. Yep. Um, it's also the closest I get to dancing. So, um, um, Not everybody will welcome you. You are not promised in this setup that everything will go the way you want. That is not how it is. People will accept or they won't accept. That's not the promise. Yet be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near. Here. Read this with me. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. One more time. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. We believe and we are told in God, we are told that God in Jesus at Christmas has drawn near. That is the Christmas story, near. And if it isn't your story yet, I invite you to test it. Simply ask God, if you are near, let me know. If you are near, let me know. Here's why I think mission agencies use this passage, are turning to this passage a lot. I think we like to be in power. I like to have my sleeping bag. We love to be in the position of here, can I give you? Because we feel good about ourselves in that process. We are the great rescuers. Like the song, only we're trying to be the subject of the song, not Jesus. And it's understandable. It's a good feeling to help others. What we forget is that power creates distance. 
Those of you who are parents have discovered sometimes you have to be very careful what you say. Teachers. Because the fact that you have a kind of authority changes your conversation. Some things it's easier to say, and relationships are easier without power, which is why I think Jesus sends them out to say, eat what is in front of you. It's not all going to go your way. Which is why in the end what you see in the life of Jesus is that he surrenders power to save others. We're talking about this and uh, had a conversation with Kim. This is, you're going to be able to make it up here? Excellent. Um, Kim's had uh, uh, recent encounters with uh, a lack of power. We're really collecting the whole set of broken bones here at the moment. Back in, actually, back in the old days, they used to give you the, the X-ray thing. And I had a friend who made a, um, an X-ray body out of the various body parts of a whole bunch of different people. Now it's all digital, so it'll suck the fun out of life. <laughs> Are you going to be able to hold this? Hold this? Yep. Only if I can manage to turn on. Uh, so Colin and I were talking about the realities of when you're wandering around your neighbourhood on crutches. So, you know, when you normally go out for a walk, you're heading out with purpose, time frame, and you say hi to people on the way past. When you're on your knee scooter or your crutches, people stop and talk to you. Because you're not going fast and you're not going in a great hurry. And there's a connection of, oh, what happened? There's a story they can already ask you. There's a conversation already happening. And what is that thing you've got your leg on with your purple cast? I've never seen one of those. We've lived in Waimari Beach six years this month. Um, we didn't have any neighbours when we started. But we've had good relationships with neighbours. Lester chats a lot to our neighbours about gardening and cars and whatever it is that boys talk about. Um, Pretty much covered it, didn't they? Gardening, gardening cars. cars. Sport, sorry. Sport, sport, sport. Oh, yes, he says the sport. And then, of course, we had a dog. So we chatted to our neighbours when we were out. But there was always kind of that time frame thing. And we've never been into any of our neighbours' houses, and they've never been into ours. So the first Sunday that I wasn't at church, my neighbour came in with a box of chocolates and a couple of magazines. We sat and had a chat. Since then, her husband's had a, knee, um, a hip replacement. So what, the first thing I did when I could walk is I still couldn't carry him a cup of tea, so I walked next door, and he could put a cup of tea on his walker, so he made me a cup of tea. And we were in each other's houses. And the next time I went in, he was asleep and his wife was having a chat. She said, do you go to church? I said, yep, and where is the church? And da-da. I've never been to church, but I'd quite like to come. Cool. So would you like me to take you? Nah. I'm a single child. I'm an only child. I'm used to going places on my own. I'll just rock up one day. Wow. Six years. Lots of chats, but never that chat. And then uh, another woman, we would, it was a dog-walking chatting friend. Lester's particularly chatted to both of them. Um, but Lester told Kat that I was under house arrest, so she offered to come with books. So we communicated via Neighbourly, because she's one of the people that manages the Neighbourly site. Um, and then she popped in with her dog and her books. And now I've got the invitation to pop down to her house. And they have a pool, and I need to exercise my ankle. So one of the barriers, I think, disappeared when I became slower, and not in a hurry, and no agenda, Bored out of my tree at times. Um, but available, I think. 
Um, and so, yes, the relationships were there, but the relationships have changed in the last six weeks since I broke my ankle. Thank you. Um, please don't rush out and break your ankle. <laughs> we'll just pause, because they're not going to hear a thing I say until you get, yes. Okay. <laughs> and yet, um, actually, Linda would tell a slightly similar story. Because, um, you know, we had this accident. What did I say wrong there? Well, yeah. <laughs> Yep, it's not funny with your name, you know. Um, the <laughs> and so would I a bit, though I find it really hard to slow down. Okay, and when you're busy, then you miss those relational opportunities. And I would say equally, um, for those of you who've been in one place for a long time, there's some real gems there. It takes time to make, become more than an acquaintance. It takes time and opportunity. I did, um, did have a meet a minister in Island Bay who had the happy ability of growing a church. He would fill a church with non-Christians within a year. And all he did is he spent two hours a day walking around the neighborhood with his dog collar. What he said to me was that the first month he would say hi to people and nobody would respond. He said, the second month, people would say hi back. He said, the third month, he said, I have people in tears. I assume he walked slowly. I assume. And what we've lost in today's society with our cars and our busyness is the ability to brush against people. And we lose it because we're a cold culture. If you travel to other cultures that are hotter, people live outside. And so you, you rub shoulders easily. So what does it mean for us to be dependent on others, to have space, to eat what is set before us, to know that God is near? I think as a church we try and do some of this stuff. I actually think that's what, that's what Move and Groove and Craft Group and 50s Plus, and actually you could say Activate and Youth and um, Icons for Girls and Who Let the Dads Out and Christmas in the Park, these are... Chances to draw alongside others and the possibility of connecting if we're not too busy, too rushed. Last week I talked about the idea of listen, love, and repeat. As I read through Luke 10 and I muse on how missions organizations are running to this and I can see why, and I say to myself, for I am a proud person, and I don't like to ask for help. I say to myself, actually, I should ask for help. Maybe I have to get over myself. And I say to myself, that belief that God is near, that God is present in my neighbor's household and life, but maybe they can't spot it. What does that ask of me? It asks some trust. There was an um, ethicist, ethicist, yes, person who writes about ethics, John Kavanagh, who went to work three months at Mother Teresa's House of the Dying. He wanted to have a clear answer as how to spend the rest of his life. 
So the first morning he was there, he met Mother Teresa, and she said, asked, what can I do for you? And he said, can you pray for me? Mother Teresa asked, what would you like me to pray for? Nice practical question. And he asks, now remember, he's traveled thousands of miles to be here, pray that I have clarity. And Mother Teresa said firmly, no, I will not do that. He asked her why. She said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. He was a bit taken aback and she said, he said, well, you always seem to have the clarity I long for. And she laughed and said, I never have clarity. What I have is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. I find myself wondering if you don't blame the father, farmer for the weather. The weather just is. That's not the th thing. I find myself wondering sometimes if in church what we've lost is simply to trust that God is near. To ask God, reveal that to me. And trust no matter what the weather is, no matter what the circumstances are. And yeah, sometimes, uh, for me, I won't say this to you because that would be offensive. I need to get over myself. Accept that I am broken in places and need help. And actually, it can be a bit more fun. I have a cunning plan. I'll let you know how this gets on. Our next-door neighbors chopped down some trees because they were over our house. And they're now sitting in their backyard. Um, and I can see into their backyard. So, unfortunately... Uh, life um, intervened, but I borrowed the church trailer so I could say, can I help you get rid of those so we could do it together? That, instead of being great saviour stuff where we can be dependent and, but also helping. And yet, I'll come back to the start. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Now think of your house and your home and your neighbours that you can or cannot imagine, that you can or cannot name, the dog that barks, the bits that annoy you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Now think about what you'll be doing this time tomorrow morning. Where will you be? Who will be around you? Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Now think of the thing that is really driving you nuts, apart from me. Okay, it's me. You can still do it. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Will you say it one time with me? Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I think we're supposed to go into life and mission and relationship, not having all the answers. I think we're supposed to go anywhere that Jesus is going. I think we have to eat what is put in front of us. I think we have to accept that we're not going to be in power, and we have to trust simply that God is near. And then we look to God and say, come on, and we see what happens. So give us trust in you, God. 
wean us off our desire to always be in power, to have all the answers, to have certainty and clarity. Wean us from that. Take us to a place of trust. Gift us with relationships of depth and width. Because you love us and more than us. Amen. Um, what I'd like to do is, uh, can I get the team up? We'll do, uh, we'll just do rescuer one more time. Um, reminding us who the rescuer is.